On September 7, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar with Alfred Moore, postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Cambridge. The seminar was titled, Anonymity, Pseudonymity, and Deliberation, Why Not Everything Should Be Connected. Ethan Zuckerman, director of the MIT Center for Civic Media and associate professor of practice with the MIT Media Lab, offered a response. This event was part of the Making Democracy Work seminar series. Moderating the discussion was the chair of the series, Arkan Fung, Ford Foundation Professor of Democracy and Harvard Kennedy School Academic Dean. For more information, please visit ash.harvard.edu. Today's talk is about digital technology and grappling, and that's a big, big subject, the digital public sphere, and, and both of our guests today have a lot and written a lot about that big topic and it should be on everybody's mind whether and how the digital public sphere has transformed politics and public conversation uh, and it, everybody knows that it's, it's very significant both for its kind of destructive effects in, in destroying traditional journalism basically as as we know it in traditional media organizations and replacing it with with something different and Today's talk will, you know, we in the Q and A we can address some of these larger uh, questions. The particular talk will be focused on a narrower set of questions and looking at the public sphere from the perspective of online conversation and online co uh, commenting and thinking hard about the question of anonymity and what the pros and cons of anonymity are. And to bring this home to the, how many people are Kennedy School students in in so maybe a half or a third. Um, I was talking to some of the, the new faculty at the Kennedy School earlier this summer. We, you'll be glad to know we put them through an orientation so they know something about teaching. You're actually not trained in how to be a good teacher when you get a PhD. That may come as some sur surprise to you. But we try to give people a little bit of a boot camp. That's sure you get your PhD. That's true. If you get it from the ed school, it's They're a little bit different. They're pretty good at it. But we try to give our, our uh, incoming faculty a little bit of an orientation about how to teach. And one of the difficulties of teaching at the Kennedy School is that most of the students, most of the faculty, and probably most of the staff come from the left of the political spectrum. And some of you, if you're from the left of the, you might think, well, what's, what's the problem? That's a good thing. But it's a problem from the perspective of intellectual diversity, and in particular, uh, conservative students, even conservative faculty, oftentimes have a hard time uh, expressing their views, getting a little bit of airtime, uh, not getting, and I think this is largely for social reasons as much as for intellectual reasons, is that there are social costs to expressing views, as John Stuart Mill, among others, recognized, that uh, it's very costly to express unconventional views, say conservative views, at the Kennedy School. And in the teaching workshop, we talked a lot about whether there ought to be some provision for anonymous class discussion. So for expressing your views, even in a class of 20 people or 50 people, anonymously somehow, because maybe that would be create some space for unconventional viewpoints to be aired in a way that would be more effective than we're doing it now. We, we haven't actually done that now. It would be an interesting experiment to conduct to see how it goes, and we might move forward with that. But that's like one recent experience that's, that's kind of relevant to uh, what Alfred's going to be talking about today. Okay, so our two speakers today, both good friends. First, uh, Alfred Moore, who was an Ash Center Democracy Fellow 
back in 2012. It doesn't seem like that long, but he was. He's currently a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Cambridge, where he has this unbelievably long postdoc. It's very enviable. But uh, soon, it's coming to an end, and soon he will be taking a paying job where he actually has to teach classes and stuff like that. Um, very regrettable for you, so enjoy the last bit of your postdoc. He's uh, working for on a project right now called Conspiracy and Democracy, History, uh, Political Theory, and Internet Research. And there's a lot of conspiracy theory. I think American politics, the whole history of American politics is full of conspiracy theories. There's a great book about this. And uh, Alfred is a, uh, investigating conspiracies in a, an updated and broader historical context. He's a political theorist by training and is very pleased that you bring political theory, which oftentimes doesn't deal with contemporary issues like the technological context up to date. My good friend Ethan Zuckerman is director uh, of the MIT Center for Civic Media at the Media Lab and is an associate professor of practice at the Media Lab, which and he has great, great work there, has supervised many, many, many students over many years who also have gone on to do uh, important work. Uh, Ethan is the most interesting person to talk to about internet and politics, especially if you're concerned with the activism and, and uh, social movement side of internet and politics, among other things. He co-founded the international blogging community Global Voices, which uh, is at the intersection of the internet, journalism, and, and social movements. And he is probably one of the first fellows, if not the first fellow, of the Berkman Center for Internet and Society over on the other set of... No, I just, I just no. saw longer than a Everybody, nobody leaves Berkman. Um, and he is uh, author recently of Rewire Digital Cosmopolitans in the Age of Connection. And so Ethan will be commenting on Alfred's paper, and I may or may not offer some comments if, if I have anything intelligible to say by 4.45. So right. go ahead, Alfred Moore. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Archon, and thank you, Ethan. Um, so I'm going to stand up here so I can uh, change the slides here so I don't want to be hidden from Archon and Ethan as well. So, so we're going to... Yeah, yeah, well, it's great. Um, it's you great cannot time. hide from us. Yeah. <laughs> certainly can't. No. Um, yeah, so it's great to be here. And I just want to say a word or two, first of all, about the about how I came into this topic. Because as Arthur mentioned, I'm working on this project at Cambridge, and it's a big sort of interdisciplinary thing. We have historians, political theorists, anthropologists, someone who does computational social science, and people focusing on internet research. And so this project came sort of opportunistically out of that environment. And um, I should say a word about my co-authors, John Norton. John Norton um, has for a long time been deeply interested and involved in debates about the internet. He tells me frequently that he had an email address in the 1970s, and so he knows that <laughs> he's, been, he's been in these debates for a long time. And it's true. And he's, a, he's been a long time journalist, and so he's also, as a journalist, been involved in discussions, for example, at The Guardian, uh, where he was a columnist, or he is a columnist on technology for The Observer. And he was there when they were having the discussions about how they should set up and design, set up the architecture of their um, comment space and what kind of conversation they wanted to create and so on. And talking about this with him, you know, it strikes me as an instance of, of kind of online institutional design, really. This is what we're we're thinking about how to structure spaces in order to foster or explain certain types of communication. Oh, we've got a, we've got a thing here. Uh, 
of it's for front and back again. Yeah. <laughs> well, this is another thing you're about to find out, which is that I'm actually not that tech savvy. So, it's, um, so John Norton is, is extremely big in the tech world, and he's interested, um, interested in the internet, interested in the effects of the internet restructuring the public sphere, and asking skeptical questions about how much difference it really has made to the ways in which we uh, conduct our politics, and particularly uh, conduct our political talk. Well, Fredheim, um, my other colleague, works primarily on, on Russia, and his particular interest is using computational methods to analyze how authoritarian regimes uh, interfere with, constrain, manipulate, and influence the public sphere. So he's done a lot of work on social media, and does a lot of coding, and so he's got, these, he's got this set of skills. And so putting that together with John Norton, and then there's me with my, I come out of a background in political theory, but with an interest in deliberation and demo democratic deliberation, deliberative democracy, thinking about the quality of public discourse. And we put all this together and we, we um, started out on a, a sort of side project for ourselves, looking at online commenting. And, I, and obviously I'll say a little bit about, more about that first. But just part of what motivated this, as I said, an opportunity to study online institutional designs, but also this sense that you know, more and more people now are getting their news online. Um, a few study letters, 40% of people were finding at least some of their news from Facebook. Um, traditional newspapers are being killed by, uh, uh, killed by the, the freely available online media, and they're having to channel their content through Facebook now in order to even get anybody to look at it. And this, we think, is a, is a, is a big shift and a big potential shift in, in the way that public sphere is structured, an interesting one. A lot of this work sort of, a lot of the work that's been done on that question, in particular on questions of how people are finding their news. And throughout these early, throughout these sort of, throughout these debates about online commenting, how to set up comment spaces, there's been a long, um, there's a common tension between anonymity and real name environments. All right, so, um, and anonymity typically is taken to be valuable because it enables expression free from re repercussions, and it's also taken to be destructive because it enables expression free from <laughs> 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 This is the problem. Also enables people to engage in abusive language that can in, in turn inhibit that, that, uh, that kind of talk, those expressions. And what you get from thinking in terms of a, a tension between anonymity and real name spaces here is a kind of trade-off, right? And a trade-off that is practically difficult to judge, but conceptually pretty simple. If you want the goods associated with anonymous spaces, which include this freedom of expression, you also get the bads. And if you want the goods associated with a real name space, like the kind of disciplinary influence of community norms, you also get the inhibition, the social conformity, the offline power relations coming into play. And I'm aware, how long, I'm aware that I shouldn't be speaking for too long, right? Okay, so, you know, um, I'm interested, you know, I've been looking a little bit about what people have said about anonymity and deliberation in theory, and it, it isn't a huge amount, but um, one way of framing the question here is to say that anonymous speech might be thought to be more sincere, right? So by insulating, by sort of insulating citizens from observation and the kinds of soft social sanctions or hard punishments, it can enable citizens to speak in public in a way that's more consistent with their own private views. So people like Timur Kuran have called this preference, talked about preference falsification and talked about the ways in which outlets that are, you know, permit anonymity permit a kind of sincerity that you wouldn't have. And Danielle Allen actually has a, has, has a nice piece where she makes a, a similar kind of argument, where she says regimes of, you know, regimes of forced silence 
lose the kinds of sincere expression that you need in order to accurately sort of gauge the mood of people and, and to get good information about what's going on. And so she talks about how regimes of silence, uh, similarly to Timur Kuran, that you know, regimes of silence look rigid, but they're actually very fragile, precisely because they don't allow people to express their sort of sincere opinions. But then there's, a, then there's the, the, the question that anonymity can permit insincerity by enabling people to say different things to different audiences. And particularly, it can open up a way of, it can open up a gap between speech and action. And the classic example of opening up a gap between speech and action is Mill's argument against secret voting in elections. But there's another way of thinking about that as, what, uh, as, as saying that anonymity permits strategic action within the dimension of speech. So when people are anonymous, they're also able to manipulate, they're also able to pretend to be something they're not. They're able to, and, and this is something we see often in, in online communication. And so when it comes back, and when it comes to thinking about online spaces, you know, this kind of dualism between anonymous and real name spaces is something that's, that's quite commonplace in, in the way, I have a quote here from Randy Zuckerberg, it's from about five years ago, anonymity on the internet has to go away, people behave a lot better when they have their real names down. And it has a lot of sort of intuitive sense about it, and it has informed several policies, like it's informed the policy changes that the Huffington Post has gone through that we all described. They said the behavior is terrible in the anonymous environment, we want to move towards more real name environments to encourage better behavior. But we think this trade-off is not quite what it seems. And in particular, we, we try to disaggregate the concept of anonymity itself. And particularly, we think, about, we think about it in two terms of two main dimensions. The first is durability, which we use to refer to the ease or difficulty with which identities can be acquired and changed. And so a durable identity doesn't have to be your real name, but it does need to be stable over time in a particular context. And this particular dimension has sort of come to the fore in online communication, you know. And it opens up a distinction, on the one hand, between easy anonymity, in which people are able to create multiple identities or easily create new identities if for any reason they want to, you know, any reason they want to. And it creates the possibility, so, you know, against that, there's a possibility of having durable, stable identities, which we call stable pseudonyms. And it's this stability... I, I kind of argue, like the theoretical claim I make, is that this kind of stability allows for at least a little bit of communicative accountability in the context of a particular forum or space. And that's something that I lean a bit on later. When new names are easy to create, identities are disposable. And so it's easy to just avoid communicative accountability altogether. And connectedness, on the other hand, refers to bridging and linking communication across different social identities, social contexts. And so this... You can be, you know, this could be illustrated in an online, uh, sort of in, a, in an offline context by the kind of rules of disclosure, like Chatham House rules, where you sort of detach the attribution of who said what from the actual statements themselves, in order precisely to keep what goes on in the room separate from the kinds of debates uh, and, and effects outside it. So in the online context, it's the use of real names that opens the possibility of connectedness, that makes it possible to link statements from one space to your work, to your home, to other, and to let things travel around in, in, in ways that you can't necessarily control. And I don't talk about traceability here, but I could talk about it later, because it's not something that we find particularly... It's something that is important in a lot of the philosophy and law discussions of anonymity online, but it's not, we think, as important to the discussion of the sort of deliberative effects. But what we do if we make this distinction, instead of just a distinction between anonymous and real name spaces, we sort of get other possibilities. So where we say, okay, what the anonymous space is, is a space where there's not much durability. It's very easy to create new identities. Identities are disposable. And there's also not much connectedness. Not any at all, in fact. Like, when you're, when you're anonymous, 
nobody can link anything you say to anything else you do or what you say in another context or who you want to be in another context. Um, and the real name environment, by contrast, is stable. You can't change who you are very easily. You sort of maybe have to move town and stop, you know, stop writing home or something. You have to, uh, it's, it's harder work. And it's got high connectedness. I mean, it's, when you use your real name, you are potentially linked in, in, in ways, you know, linked into lots of different contexts. But it opens the possibility that you could be durable, but not connected. And so we've, we call this sort of pseudonymous identity, the idea of having a stable pseudonym in a particular context. And we sort of make the claim following this, that when we think about what's good and bad about anonymity in online communication, what's bad about anonymity is weak durability, where communicative accountability is easily evaded. And what's bad about real name is strong connectedness, where you end up with reproducing offline power dynamics and linking people into the kinds of conformity effects and the kinds of all of the kinds of ordinary social dynamics associated with speaking with people you know. And so our sort of, I can't remember how Archon put it quite, uh, but, but you know, if we're thinking about positive institutional you know, changes or something we can do, it might be interesting to think about how we can generate systems where it's hard to dispose of online identities but possible to keep it separate from offline identities. And that's sort of what we end up looking at in this study. And so I should give a health warning for this part of the study because one of the pitfalls of interdisciplinary work means that, you, you know, as in my case, I've, I've ended up working on, um, working on a sort of big data analysis project for which I have not really been trained. And I'm not the one doing the analysis and doing the writing the program and scraping the comments and so on. But my colleague Rolf did and scraped more than 50 million comments from the front page of the Huffington Post, USA, over a period of two years, um, or, you know, going backwards. So this is more than 50,000 articles and 50 million comments. And what's interesting about this phase in the Huffington Post is that they went from a regime of what we call easy anonymity, where anybody could sign in, you could create multiple accounts, you could run bots, all of that stuff, to registration. And registration through Facebook, but through the back door. So it was like, Nothing changed on the front, but they did authenticate and screened out all of the multiple accounts. And of course, that's not perfect, right? Facebook's not perfect. You can create fake accounts. But it, it increased what we would call the durability of identities in that space. And then, six months after that, they changed again. And they outsourced the entire operation to Facebook. So the commenting were, became using the Facebook API, it, it shifted. So what you would see on the front page remained the same. In each case, we were only taking the comments that appeared below the line on the, you know, on the front page. But what's going on in the Facebook phase is that it's your little Facebook identity profile that's popping up next to your comment, and it's popping up depending on your privacy settings in, uh, in, your, in your Facebook. So we went through these changes, which sort of would take roughly approximate to the kinds, you know, it's a, a rough approximation of the kinds of models of anonymous and what we call anonymous, pseudonymous, and real name spaces that we talk about. And what it allowed us to do was to just make some quite simple analyses of change over time between these phases. And what, what we didn't do, I should say, was you know, take samples and do detailed quant uh, qualitative analysis. But we were able to look at some pretty rough metrics. Um, and what we found very unsurprising given what we'd expect from the social psychology literature and experimental stuff. Participation drops off hugely through each of these shifts, like fewer people are, are commenting. Within this result, interestingly, as they went from anonymous to pseudonymous, this first change, the decrease in participation was uneven across areas. So everything went down, but crime went down a lot more. It dropped from first to fifth 
and other, other topics such as those tagged with gay voices, among others, saw, an, oh, you know, they decreased, but they decreased by less. So it sort of shifted the pattern and improved the position of some topics relative to others. But I won't say much more about that. That's just a, so a slight shift in the sort of pattern of issues that people talk about. And it seemed to us that some of these issues were the more controversial ones. But it's, and then when we look at civility, and here we're looking, again, it's in a, in a fairly rough and ready way, but there's a guy at Carnegie Mellon who's assembled a, a giant list of words associated with, with it being abusive or abusive language. Um, which we've sort of tweaked and edited a little bit, but you can just find out how much swearing is going on. Pretty crude, but you find a big drop. A first change, very large reductions in the incidence of bad language. And between this first change, and so looking at this first change, right, we think, what's going on, right? So what's going on? Mm -hmm. Are we just removing the trolls? Right? Is the effect just that the pool of you know, the pool that we're looking at just got cleaner because we removed these other items, so on average everyone's swearing less. And that's not quite what we find, right? Because what we're able to do is look at a cohort of the same users on either side of the change and look at how their behavior changes. So, and their behavior exhibits this similar change. So we think, okay, well what else might be going on? Maybe these, these users who stayed afterwards you know, were being distracted. They, they were being trolled or abused or someone's being rude and they're just coming back to them and, that's, and then you're getting in some argument and that's what's going on. And so we look just at the root comments on articles, not on comments on comments, the kind of spidering conversations. We find the same thing. Um, or, you know, we find the same sort of improvement in this crude measure of behavior. And then the, the last sort of test we did on, on this first change the Huffington Post introduced, um, was looking at a special subset of users across each of the changes. And this is a subset of users that the Huffington Post gave little badges to. They give out these badges saying, you're a good commenter, we like you. You're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're contributing well to this platform, to this community. And so we looked at their behavior over, across this, and they exhibited similar sorts of improvements. So our, sort of, our claim here is that there's something like a broken windows effect. You know, the sort of a slightly discredited social uh, theory about crime, right? but where there's something about the improvement of the quality of the environment that's making everybody who remains raise their game somewhat. It's not just interaction with trolls, and it's not just the presence of, of people doing bad behavior, we think. What about from the second regime to the third? Well, that's what I'm going to get onto, because we did this analysis on the first regime, and there are, a few, there are a few sort of technically awkward things that mean we can't mirror the exact same analysis onto the Facebook phase, because once, they dis once all the data disappears into Facebook, we can't track the individual users anymore, right? So we can't look at the cohort. We can't do this kind of cohort analysis after. So we can't say, of those users who were present throughout all of these changes, how did they change? Because that would be interesting. Um, but it, that, so it's a bit tricky to do that. But I'll talk about the, the Facebook shift now. Because when we, when we get to this real name phase, something else happens. And we thought... <laughs> So what we thought was we were just going to see a fairly linear improvement as you go from this horrible anonymous you know, phase to this, you know, and to real names. And, you, and everybody says, well, you know, if you've got your real name down, you're going to behave better because you wouldn't talk like that in front of your mother, all this stuff. <laughs> so overall, there is, so there's a big reduction after the first change. The second change, there's a small overall reduction in, in, in bad language. It's not even, and there are interesting exceptions. And so this is where, this is where we search for insults directed to, in, insults directed to a person. 
And between the three phases, as you can see, this is something where we sort of expected it to either get better here and then stay better or get even better in the real name phase, but it gets worse again. So in Facebook, people are, people are more likely, more, a greater proportion of their abusive language is directed to you, URA, whatever, mm -hmm. which was surprising, right? We found some stuff about conversational, so um, we were particularly interested in, in some of this stuff and looking at gender effects. And what we found is that, well, one thing that we found is that um, male authors on average attract longer comments. So that's male authors of articles attract longer comments. And it's sort of controlling for the sort of, you know, this, this effect, and the, the difference in the, uh, the length of the comments on the anonymous, oh, sorry, on the um, articles written by men and articles written by women. Again, they seem longer during the, they're, they're all longer during the pseudonymous phase in the middle. But there's also, across all the regimes, there's a, there's a standing difference between articles written by men and articles written by women. Now, we're a bit wary of this because we don't know quite how much to read into it because just because an article is written by a woman doesn't mean it means what we think it means. It could just be the byline of an article about uh, you know, Barack Obama's health reform or something, rather than, say, an opinion piece mm -hmm. where, the ident you know, where someone's identity as a woman is likely to attract uh, a particular kind of ire or some, something like that. So pinch of salt on this one. And I should also say that this is, this is stuff we're sort of in process. You know, we're in, we're in the process of making sense of this and processing it. Um, disagreement with female article authors. This was another curious one. Where we said figures for disagreement. So the proportion of, this is the proportion of comments expressing explicit disagreement with the author. So these are comments that start out with, you know, you're, no, you're wrong, or a whole bunch of kind of, what are you talking about? A whole bunch of phrases that we've, you know, sort of identified that um, disagreement. So in the real name phase, this is, and this is odd because they're staying roughly the same across the anonymous and the pseudonymous groups, but then when we get to the Facebook phase, people are talking differently. People are talking, so the percentage of a disagreement by author and gender change markedly during that Facebook phase. But, um, and then these, you know, I'm, I'm sort of not sure how to interpret all of these. The other one we're interested in is insults, and because again, this is a fairly simple, it's a fairly simple sort of metric, it's the sort of thing that you can do at scale. Um, and here we're looking at insults directed to masculine and feminine pronouns. So we're looking at he is a whatever, she is a whatever, gender pronouns followed by an insult. And again, we're looking at proportions here, and in the pseudonymous phase, they're all going down. Yeah, I don't get that either. And there's always a difference, more gendered insults in all of the phases. So she is a whatever, but it goes back up during the Facebook phase, right? And this is, we think, an interesting result. Um, and I should say, with, with respect to the insults, we sort of manually coded a sample of this stuff mm -hmm. because it was easy to manually code for insults. We tried manually coding for sort of reason giving and stuff, but it was horrible uh, intercoder reliability, and it's it's not my area doing discourse quality analysis and such. So, uh, but we did it using insults, and we found exactly the same pattern. We found that the, the, this machine tool was picking up false, some 12% you know, of false positives, but the pattern was exactly the same. Again, an interesting result. And two other effects I want to mention. So one of them is to do with learning. So for all three periods, there's a small but clear learning effect. 
So if you take, if you split each user's commenting history, and this is each user who's made more than, say, 100 comments, if you split each commenting history into sort of early work and later work, as it were, right, uh, you know, you can, you can see that most of their later work is, is better in terms of these rough metrics, right, less use of abusive language. The effect isn't large, and this isn't, and so these are people who are there, you know, they're on either side, it's not just people who get turfed out because they're abusive and somehow get banned. So there's a sort of, so we think there's a sort of a learning effect, but the learning effect not quite disappears, but it is much less pronounced. So, so this learning effect has the difference between early work and later work within, within the phase. People who are commenting a lot during the Facebook commenting phase, they're not improving as much as people who commented a lot across the, the other time spans that we're looking at. And the other interesting result has to do with the structure of engagement. And this, I think, gets to where we, our sort of our sense of what, what might be going on here is that the structure of the engagement changes dramatically. So um, the most notable change is the level of engagement and commitment. So commenters are much less likely to reply to each other's comments. And again, all these comments still appear below the line on the Huffington Post, but in the Facebook phase, they're much less likely to reply to each other's comments and much more likely to simply comment on the route. And there's a higher proportion of, sort of infrequent commenters under the Facebook commenting phase. I mean, what, what our, our sense is, this data, is that Facebook is not creating a single community, right? There isn't. What you get in this pseudonymous phase, if we're thinking about what I was saying earlier on about our, um, anonymity and communicative accountability, what we're getting in this phase where, in this middle phase, is something where people have durable identities, right? So they have, so the worst sort of behavior is screened out, multiple users, trolls, bots, they're fairly effectively removed. Moderation remains roughly the same, we think, across those two early changes. But what you're getting is greater stability and a, a greater possibility of commitment and um, a kind of reputational investment in the forum. But what you're still doing, because it's pseudonymous, you still don't know who anybody is, the, you have no interest in them outside of the forum. It's only endogenous effects of the community that's being created in that space. So any sort of improvements in behavior and what we're seeing we think is sort of endogenous to the community within, within the sort of pseudonymous phase. When you move to Facebook, you completely change the structure of the community. And instead of talking to a large community of diverse others in a structure of public impersonality, I would, I would call it, what you get is talking in small groups of friends about others and about the other side. So if you're commenting on an article about the healthcare plan, you'll be talking to, what does Facebook have, a maximum of 1,500 friends or something? Some people might have open profiles, but you're probably talking to a much smaller group, and they're going to be your central focus. So what we think is going on with this odd result that we expect, where the real name behavior is so much worse on so many metrics, is that the center of gravity of the, the conversation in some way is shifting from a single newspaper forum, this is interesting for thinking about the public sphere, I think, to multiple simultaneous groups of friends, which is going to introduce it by itself lots of other changes. I should say a, a word of warning, or some limitations, I suppose. The one thing we really don't know about is what changes with moderation when we move from these first two phases into Facebook. Because we can sort of we can be reasonably confident that the moderation didn't change radically as the Huffington Post were applying it in the, in the first two phases. 
but anecdotally, we know that we know that um, we know that moderation is hugely important in producing the quality of, of talking spaces, right? But we don't know much. We, we don't know that much about how Facebook does it and what. We know a bit about the sorts of things Facebook removed, but we don't know what what structure, you know, what what um, strong differences there would have been in the sort of way that Huffington Post was doing it and the sort of way that Facebook does it. So there, there's that moderation effect that we just sort of don't know about, and then we which we just don't know about, right? So and then there's the possibility. Oh, and that's something that I mentioned earlier that you know we can't we can't do quite the same sort of analysis across each of the three phases, but some we can, and some we can do the sort of overall shape of the you know of the average user we can't track a cohort i'm sure there's more limitations <laughs> that was just getting out a few of them and just at the end we think this contributes may it perhaps contributes at least in a small way to some of the polarization debates because the empirical work is often focused on exposure and certainly the stuff that facebook did that said that um said that people were exposed to much more diverse media than they thought it focuses on exposure and not about communication among people not not who you're talking with about the, new, uh, the news. And from my understanding of the sort of polarization thesis, it rests heavily on who you're talking with and how the talking with them is as important, if not more so, than the actual exposure. So um, we think it sort of steps in, in, there's one step in the direction of talking to those kind of questions. And I should say about institutional design, like identity regimes, I think, are clearly not the only and perhaps not even the most important factor. So the kind of audience you get is going to be hugely important. This is why the Financial Times has a really great comment section where journalists actually use it to get information and tips and so on. Like the kind of community you're dealing with, this is huge. The way you're moderating, that's huge. There are other sorts of structural changes you can introduce, upvoting, these kinds of things. But these are all, like, there's a whole load of stuff. So we were just looking at identification, but we thought it was an important one and an interesting one to, to at least um, start with. Uh, so that's basically a, a little summary of, of this work. So I'm looking really forward to some comments and some feedback. So Alphabet, it's fascinating and it, it's, it's also quite surprising, which is wonderful. And I, I felt like near the end I was starting to get where this is actually going, really having a lot to do with this notion that what's happening is we're dealing with radically different kinds of online spaces in the three chapters that you talked about. Uh, but I want to back up and actually sort of start um, by commenting on this notion of the real name as an identity that you've recognized as, as durable, which is generally a good thing in conversational spaces, and connectable, which is not always a good thing in online spaces. If we you know, sort of turn the clock back maybe a dozen years. I thought we were going to talk about Newsnet. We were just going to talk about early blogging. Yeah. Um, it was fairly common for people who were writing in reasonably repressive environments to use persistent synonyms. So a lot of people probably remember Solemn Pox writing from Baghdad you know, during uh, the US invasion. You know, in the Global Voices community, we had folks like Zim Pundit and Meskel Square writing about Ethiopia, sort of in countries where you really don't want to be identified. And in many cases, we had relationships with these people and, and literally never knew who they were. What was interesting is that they had what you might think of as iterated reputation. So I never met Zim Pundit, but I read and corresponded with Zim Pundit for four years. And she or he had smart things to say, was pretty consistent about her, his identity, and that became somebody that I could work with 
and sort of republish with a certain degree of confidence. This gets really messy, though, right? So um, does anyone remember Gay Girl in Damascus? Does that, anyone know that story? So this was pretty extraordinary. This, this was a blogger who started writing about her experiences as an out lesbian living in Damascus during the invasion and, and became a major source for The Guardian. The Guardian did multiple interviews with her, talked about the perspective coming from her work. She turned out to be a 40-year-old guy named Tom McMaster, who was a grad student in the UK, who explained that as a white man, he wasn't taken seriously enough because, of course, as you all know, white men generally aren't listened to very much in conversation and needed to assume the identity as a Syrian lesbian to actually be heard on matters of the Middle East. So it's a very complicated space. One of the other things that I'm sort of finding in all of this is that the guarantee of the real name is no guarantee. So one of the things that we saw when Russia invaded Georgia was, and, and uh, the Abkhazia war, we saw bloggers sort of spring up on both sides. And this makes sense. When someone invades your country, you might start writing about it. And so it makes perfect sense that people who'd never written online before would suddenly come out of the woodwork. But what that meant was it was essentially impossible to verify through this notion of iterated reputation because there was no reason to start writing about what was going on until suddenly the tanks rolled in. And suddenly there was all of this demand to sort of figure out whether these on-the-ground reports were essentially propaganda or whether they were real. Facebook is particularly fascinating on this. Facebook has basically said, we're going to use the real name because it is your one token of identity. It's going to keep you honest. It's going to you know, make sure that we know who you are. Except for the fact that in many of the markets that Facebook is expanding, it just doesn't work that way. If you go to Myanmar, where Facebook is the internet, there basically is no internet presence other than Facebook, and you go to an internet shop, you buy an internet package. It includes a name, it includes an email address, <laughs> it includes a Facebook account, and the Facebook account will be pre-populated with the 20 or 30 news feeds that you are most likely to be interested in. They're simply using Facebook entirely differently. They're using it as the daily newspaper for Myanmar, not as the social network that Facebook intended it to be. Knowing that someone is named Uthin Sway doesn't help you in the least. And it's actually worth asking the question, how much does it help you in general that you know that someone is named Uthin Sway? So it's a weird adherence to these things. It works in some contexts, not necessarily in others. So, yeah. sorry, I, I just, all my examples are from weird countries. So it, it's nothing weird, weird about Myanmar. What I love about what you've done here is you've got a really lovely natural experiment, right? So you've got a site, you've got these three different regimes of commenting where you're in an anonymity-friendly regime, you're in a pseudonymity-friendly regime, and then you're in a real name regime. Part of what's tricky about it, as you pointed out, is that when you make these changes, there may be other changes that go on. You may be losing your trolls at some point within it. You may be dealing with different moderation pieces of it. One thing that's interesting is to think about what people are doing in the same space within causal inference experiments. And as it happens, one of my doctoral students, Nathan Matias, is doing some causal inference experiments around this. So what he's doing is working in Reddit. So Reddit's a space that has strong pseudonyms, right? Persistent pseudonyms. They have a reputation system that goes with them over time. 
they have terrible problems with commenting quality. They range from uh, wonderfully helpful supportive comments to utterly scorched earth problematic comments. And what's interesting is that they have moderators who have a very deep interest in conversation quality. And so in cooperation with Reddit, Nathan is now working on experiments that sort of say, what could we do to do an A-B test to test whether things get better or get worse. So an A-B test might be, what if we put a sticky post in this thread that says, you know, a good comment looks like the following. It doesn't insult people, and it really doesn't insult people on the basis of gender or race, and we will delete you if you end up doing that. Can you tell, does the conversation get better? And his metric for better is how many of these comments get deleted? by the moderators? Do you get more comments that sort of pass? So you have a way of doing it. But interestingly enough, you've got an interesting metric as well. You have the insult metric. You have the abuse metric. One of the questions on some of this is, is there a way to cooperate with a community and sort of test some of these theories about anonymity, pseudonymity, and, and sort of looking at, at good behavior? Last thing. I think where you've got a terrific insight in all of this is around this notion that there are digital spaces, and that as the rules change for those spaces, the conversation changes. So you had a space that was essentially a street corner, where people would shout things at one another, or traffic, which tends to be where I curse at people the most often. Then you suddenly had, you know, perhaps uh, a cocktail party. You don't necessarily know everyone there, but if you're shouting insults, eventually everyone's going to find a way to sort of back away from the scary guy in the corner. Um, and, and then you suddenly end up in a real name environment where you're now in the cocktail party with, with the name tags on. And then people group into their own little groups where they're just as horrible as they are normally, which is basically what Facebook is. We, we hang out with people who have enough ideological commonality with ourselves that we sort of know exactly how awful we can be. And so my analogy for this would be some of the efforts that people have made on hate speech online. And I would push you to Susan Benesh's work. Um, she's over at American University. She did a great study of sort of two contrasting cases. One was in Kenya, and Kenya's had real problems with ethnic violence in the last couple of elections. But Kenya has this really active Twitter culture. And uh, they call themselves KOT, Kenyans on Twitter. And what happened was when people would be ethnically abusive on Twitter, there was a phenomenon called KOT cutting, which was basically anyone who viewed themselves as, as a high-profile Kenyan on Twitter would just stop talking to you. I would basically just say, look, if you're going to talk about Kikuyu, we're just not interacting with you anymore. You're out. And it was fascinating. It silenced. And not removing them, but just freezing them out. Just Cold breaking ties, cold-shouldering them. What was interesting is at the same time, ethnic hate speech on Facebook was massive in Kenya. And the reason for that is that if you were Kikuyu, you were hanging out mostly with other Kikuyus. And if you wanted to say that about the Kalenjin, you would say that about the Kalenjin. And in Myanmar, where Facebook is now really taking off, it's proving to be this phenomenally, virulently racist space uh, against the Rohingya. Uh, because it's pretty easy to quickly find out whether someone uh, identifies with the Bama people, in which case they generally, within a circle of friends, are often willing to be extraordinarily racist about it. 
So I think your findings are real. I think the way to think about them is that you're studying three separate spaces which happen to have quite a bit of overlap between population and actually thinking about it as the architecture of a space. How would our conversation here be changing if the three of us were not sitting up here with microphones on behind a table and a pitcher of water and therefore everyone knows that we're supposed to be speaking, you're supposed to be listening. If we were just sort of mixed around, someone would have made me shut up by now because we would have been having a different conversation as would have been dictated by the architecture. I think that's really where you're going on this. Yeah. Should I, should I respond? I don't know. Should I have asked yeah. a question? No, because oh, yeah. I'll yeah. it and then you can use some love responses that. in. I just want to create a little bit of space right at the very beginning for questions of information or definition or clarification before we get into the substance. Because you know we got a political theorist here who's uh, oriented toward thinking about deliberation and good deliberate and what constitutes good deliberation. There's a whole lot of theoretical kind of philosophical machinery underlying that and some people may have missed a little bit of what that is and so feel free to ask questions and then we also have technologists very sophisticated technologists also with it you know Ethan the the internet and, and its own set of terms and jargon and and but not just terms and jargon right concepts and structures and realities and so people have just questions of clarification or fact before we kind of get into the substance of, of these arguments. Our thought is even when the even when the effect numbers are quite small, the fact that we have such a huge amount of data that we're working from it makes any any changes that we do see do have a degree of significance to them. I, um, but I'm getting off my. I mean, uh, yeah, I, it's yeah, I imagine it, 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 would, yeah. Be, it would be really good I mean, to have, that's have how, deviations do, on those. And, and where we're doing regressions, we're getting p-values of you know to, to the power of minus ten, you know, on some of them. Like, but that's. The p-values yeah. aren't exactly helpful in this, yeah, and because we just have such scale. So that's what we're getting. And the only wow. times we don't get the scale where we really winnow down, but we're still we've still got enormous numbers even in the cohorts. We think of connectedness as the degree to which you your statements can be attributed to you by by others who know you in a sense. So we and so we think of think of the Facebook connectedness. Your statements can quite directly be quite directly be attributed to you, but also once you're once you're linked, once you're you're linked to your real name, it can then move in ways that you can't necessarily control, or that you can't um, you can't necessarily be in control of and unfold. So I mean, it, it does denote your, your sort of it does characterize your position in the network. And, and what and what we wanted to do with that, what we wanted to do with that notion of connectedness was really emphasize how different that is to the situation where you can't be matched to your real person. And this. It's a social, it's a sort of, and yeah, you could think of it as a social risk metric. And what's, the other thing that I sort of have a bit of, a bit of trouble with, but it's something that I didn't mention much, was a traceability. Because traceability, when you talk about people who are operating in, say, repressive regimes, it doesn't matter if you are, you know, you're operating under a pseudonym in, a, in an online space, if they can find your IP address yeah. and, and match it to you, right? And that's, so... I've described that as traceability and connectedness as the kind of linking that's visible, that's overt, and that's overt within the structure of communication that you're dealing with, right? Overt within that network. So, you know, and why I didn't want to talk about traceability here was in, in a sense that we know that being traceable is going to have chilling effects on speech, right? And that, you know, you're going to have to start using Tor, or you're, you know, if you really want yeah. to evade. 
being held accountable for your, communicatively accountable by you know the, the regime chiefs or something, right? Although what's interesting is that platforms like Facebook and platforms like HuffPo have often made decisions to minimize traceability. So for instance, it's trivially easy for platforms just to sign every comment with an IP address. Um, and you're right, for, for someone in Zimbabwe who's trying to hide her identity while writing online, um, that would be extremely easy to find. That information is generally in the logs. Um, if you were the government of Zimbabwe, getting that data out of Facebook, good luck to you. Generally speaking, most system administrators guard that um, with their lives unless they're under subpoena. So the interesting thing is in moving speech onto these third-party platforms, traceability actually went way, way down. There's other attacks. You can sort of look and say, who was logged onto Facebook at this particular moment in time? You might be able to find them. What's interesting is that the, the way that you're talking about connectability, the way that you're talking about this sort of other factor within this, seems to be the connection between an online identity and an offline identity. And, and the notion that with persistent pseudonyms, there are online effects that could have consequences. I'm going to ban you from this community. You're going to lose your reputation. You're going to lose that iteration over time. It seems to be the connection to the physical and you know, also right, carceral body, right? I mean, it's, it's the, this is the physical consequence that, that yeah. can have legal consequences. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. And then, you know, yes. Yeah. Thanks. There is, in fact, a lack of traceability. Would you attribute the state of gridlock in the U.S., especially federal political gridlock, and also in Europe over, over the question of austerity, to the, to the onset of this, a lot of communication with, with very little traceability. So that people are free to flame out, as, as they sometimes describe, when you just get very angry at somebody and uh, you, you don't listen to their arguments. You see what I'm saying? I'm not sure, because I suppose those sorts of questions are very big questions that are always in the background of, of what we're doing, you know, thinking about the quality of public discourse and so on. But the, the question of traceability and connectedness for us, because as I said, we were meaning connectedness in the sense of a kind of overt way of linking your statements to your identity in a way that can be, you know, can, can meet your real, real world identity. But that in itself doesn't guarantee anything. I mean, if, as, as your examples were showing, like that doesn't guarantee anything. It depends on your community, and it depends on you, and it depends on all, so, you know, all these sorts of other things. Um, one interesting point, question that, that, that we've, been, we've been dealing with is how much this, the, technolo you know, the technological architecture matters hugely. And what you're doing in these contexts, especially when you're dealing with sort of durable pseudonyms, is that you're effectively granting this sort of third-party platform with the trust to both authenticate you as a real person on, on the back and protect that from others on the front in order for it to have these the, the potential effects that you, you want of, of being able to speak without the threat of, of being identified or, or, or connected to your statement. So I, mean, so I didn't say much about the traceability and connectedness, but I, I think they, they, they interact in interesting ways. But it, 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 it reminds us how hugely important the, the power of the third-party platforms to, to maintain this kind of trust, how, how important that is. I, this is great. I'm a sociologist, so I'm going to translate it into my words, which is sort of, <laughs> which is a, a world of uh, what we might call the public 
uh, a world of what we might call the parochial, or the, you know, various community structures, and then you're back in the world of private networks where people know you personally. And, and what's interesting about the normativity in those kinds of those different kinds of settings is the kinds of sanctions or social controls. I mean, you did make reference to broken windows, which I thought was really an interesting. A parallel, but um, it seemed to me that in some, at least in the uh, setting, which I, I would call a parochial one or a community one, where civility is being enforced, it seemed to me that there are two kinds of controls going on. On the one hand, you have a power and authority, which is the platform that you just referred to, but in a different context, you also have social control that's created by the community itself, which is a, a form of, if you will, social exclusion or ostracism of those people who violate norms. And I think both are going on in your setting, and that might account for the very steep decline. But I don't know how you would tease out the two, but it seems yeah. to me that they're both at work. Yeah, I completely agree. I, I think it's exactly, but we, we do think that it's, at least in the first transition, sort of empirically, we think in the first transition, it's it's more like the second. We think there are endogenous sort of community effects. In fact, there's a guy, Scott Wright, who's done some work on online, who's done qualitative work on online commenting, news commenting communities. And what he's got from getting into the fine grain of this is that there are different sorts of roles that commenters take on and different sorts of speech that they make. And some of them are, are, do basically introductions and sort of, you know, are showing them the ropes or sort of, doing initial acts of disciplining and saying that's not how we talk here, you know, um, these sort of soft sanctions and the ways in which the norms of a particular space are acquired and passed on. So, you know, that to, to us sounds highly plausible. And, and we think that then, again, the shift, the shift to, to commenting through Facebook changes the way those work because, you know, it's on my Facebook feed, you know, we don't have that experience very much. You know, we're, 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 we're relating as, you know, we're relating as friends. It's a friendly sort of space, and it's not one in which you tick people off for, um, you know, doing the wrong thing. The most you might do is like ignore them, or you know, not like their, not like their status or something. Um, if I could just say one, yeah, you can defriend it at the limits, yes, yes, uh, but but not if they're your, uh, not if they're married to your sister. Yeah. <laughs> so pick an example from absolutely no I don't understand what the working. I still don't understand what the working account of the uptick in incivility in third regime is, the Facebook regime, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So it seems like, I think, Ethan, you're right. There's a bunch of different variables going on in all three, not just the, not just the change from an anonymous to pseudonymous to real name, right? There's a bunch of other yeah, yeah, yeah. going on as well. Yeah. And so I'm wondering... In the Facebook regime, in that third regime, I'm just trying to operationalize what is exactly going on here, right? I suppose one thing that's going on, the thing that you like is you can enter comments in exactly the same way on the bottom of the Huffington Post article. You just have to log in with your Facebook account, right? So if it would be a better comparison if you could limit it just to those comments. We do. You do. Sorry. But isn't oh. another chain of comments coming in if I see that Ethan commented? Yeah. If I Facebook, shared it on Facebook. Yes, but yeah. I, I don't read Huffington Post. I just read your Facebook yep. post. Yeah. I see that you commented yeah. on Huff Post. I yeah. hate what you say or I like yeah, what yeah, you yeah. say. Yeah. I come from yeah. the Facebook feed. It yeah. goes to the Huffington Post. Do, and does, that, does right? that thread continue? Not if you're on Facebook. 
like not from the face, if, if you're on Facebook and you're not commenting on the Huffington Post, so people on the Huffington Post can comment on you, they could yeah, comment yeah, on right, you, right, but right. if someone just sees your comment and sees, yeah, you commented on this Huffington Post article. It doesn't go back to the Huffington Post. No. Oh, so it so. is that. So then I so really don't the, understand. So I think it's the, I, so. The cause of the uptick is. Well, right? to, oh, sorry, we've got it. Um, like yeah. the working, like some plausible story about why it right, should so go up. I, I say, I'm going to have to check. Actually, I'm going to have to check with Rolf about what exactly. But I don't think. I say I don't think they're the Facebook threads. Right, because so, the Facebook so threads, one, then I could see like it's all like-minded people hating on other yeah. people, and so the insults go way up. Because that was sort of our. our so there, there are two, there are two ways that we've been thinking about it. One of them is to, or three ways we've been trying to explain it. And one of them is that your implicit audience stops being the Huffington Post people, and so then, and that because your implicit your audience, audience becomes yeah. the Facebook people, you're more inclined to maybe be abusive. Say, look at this, look at this ridiculous, look at this ridiculous article. Can't believe this bullshit, whatever. And you, you know, you're not really engaged. So, so that's one hunch that they're just not. So the implicit audience has changed. Another but that would be like Ethan's account. Mm. There, it's not the real name or not real name that's doing the work. It's yeah. the implicit audience that's doing the work. Yeah. Wait, what's your other? Because oh, I have so a the, third to suggest. The other could be that bad language is doing something different on Facebook than it is on in the other context, right? So swearing in, in, a, in a more friendly space. So I want to suggest a, a third, which is that you've also got an hour of time in this. And in the time that you're doing the study, you actually have a fairly radical shift in discovery methods, right? So HuffPo, you know, builds a brand. There's a lot of people going to HuffPo for their news. It's one of the big names within this. Sort of midway through your study, the HuffPo brand becomes much less important than the social media brands driving people towards it. And so we see this just overall web shift from people going to the New York Times, going to HuffPo, going to CNN, to going to Facebook and then sort of finding themselves on these different sites. In that middle phase, you actually have what to me sounds like the evidence of the healthy community, right? So here's a community. It's got persistent pseudonyms. It has a registration. It's capable of developing its own norms. And those norms are surprisingly polite. They're actually people talking about the articles and sort of reacting to them. Then we go to, and this is one of the consequences of getting more of our news through Facebook, it's much harder to establish those local norms. So you now have people coming in, and because all of my friends are, uh, you know, far-right, um, you know, gun-toting Trump supporters, we see the piece on, on HuffPo, and we go, that's horrible, and we comment both on Facebook or maybe directly on the HuffPo site. I really do think you need that clarification about whether... Yeah. My comment, you know, does make it onto the site. Yeah. But even if it's just a matter of that's how I discovered it, I'm now discovering it through a mechanism of that sort of reinforcing echo chamber mm. where my response to it is likely to be as extreme as my other responses within it. Mm. So I, this is what's mm. hard about great natural experiments, and I do think this yeah. is a great natural experiment, is that you actually have this radical background shift in terms of how we do content and counter during the same period that you're doing the study. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. That's a great point, yeah. I mean, and it is, yeah. Yeah, back here. How to deal with the fact that some of the people that comment on those forums are paid by someone? Yeah. Uh, we have this problem in Colombia that yeah. certain political parties are paying those commenters to, uh, to cause a revolution. Yeah. 
hard to tease out, but a definite effect. And one of the things, one of you know, I mentioned when we when we had that first shift, where we you know the first shift, and we saw a big reduction in commenting overall, but the patterns changed. One of the one of the things that dropped out, dropped the most was uh, comments on Syria. Mm. And because my my colleague works on Russia, he knows about the role that Russian uh, the Russian media manipulation is playing. And, and there was a suggestion that bot, that we thought maybe that could partly be explained by bots dropping out and by perhaps, but that doesn't screen out the possibility <laughs> of paid commenters. Yeah, and that's that's hard to that kind of manipulation is is hard to detect. Going back to the last point, couldn't the difference be that in a pseudonymous environment, there's a issue of, you know, if someone's username is Blue Wall One Two One Two, you don't know anything about them, and you might pick up things through iterated reputation, but your assumption would be you picture someone like yourself when you're talking to them. But when someone is using their actual names, you see racial differences, you see gender differences, and that's why it goes to directed insults because you're not identifying with the person you're talking to. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. I hadn't hadn't thought of that. I mean, because one thing I I had thought of, which was triggered by you you mentioning, you know, the, the metaphor of the cocktail parties. I've been thinking it in terms of, um, stuff about civility. I mean, if you read someone like Richard Sennett talking about civility, and, and he talks in terms of the value of public impersonality, where you can, where you have norms in through which you can interact publicly with, without being intimate and without, you know, and, and at the extreme there's the sort of masking and, and that kind of that kind of thing. But precisely that it releases you from the sort of tyranny of intimacy and from the, the ways in which your own judgments are conditioned by you know your your expectations about who you're interacting with. But I think that's a that's a great point that you sort of that when you're dealing with anonymous others, you treat them as just anonymous others, as you uh, uh, yeah, implicitly ordinary other people. And, and, and an interesting like, like, and an yeah, interesting cue on in that great. would be avatars versus gravatars. So it's likely that in a in a pseudonymous sorry, sorry gravatars. What's a gravatar? Sorry, yeah, gravatar. Sorry. <laughs> Omg, I'm I just TF. Yeah, I'm using internet oh, jargon again. <laughs> no, uh, gravatars were sort of automatically generated patterns if you didn't upload a picture for your avatar on a registration system. So they often look like patterns on quilts. So what's not uncommon in pseudonymous systems is that your avatar by default is um, an abstract pattern. Whereas one of the things you can do with Facebook commenting is link your Facebook profile image to it. And it's quite possible that when I see Archon's incredibly stupid comment, but all I see is abstract triangles, I rarely say, you stupid triangle. Right. Whereas when I see Archon, right. I say, you lousy university professor right. to hell with you. Right. And, you know, and, and do it based on his personal or physical characteristics right. rather than... Yeah. That. And that's interesting because, you know, when they... Because, as I said, the data was all pulled from the front page of the thing, but during the Facebook phase, you will get the Facebook picture. Yeah, right. I, I, I think our friend work. here is absolutely right about her, yeah. her hypothesis. I think that's a really good point. It was interesting because I've been thinking about that point. I think that is a really valid point. I was thinking more to what Ethan had said about um, the, the particular nature of HuffPo and what it was during that time period and how that changed. And so that it's not really the same environment at all. I don't think many people knew Huffington Post and we're going there. And so I would posit um, that one of the things that really changed is the community. And, and when you're, uh, and that there's that self-policing, that you're creating this in a, um, with a pseudonym, you're creating a durable new identity 
that's not yourself. Um, and so it doesn't necessarily react or is as full uh, as yourself in some ways. And that there is, I would say, actually anonymity in your Facebook account on HuffPo once it's like the New York Times. No one's going to know who I am. My friends don't, aren't going to be on Huffington Post and aren't going to see that. And I, I would actually say that using your real self in an open, really public community is as anonymous as shouting, you know, my name is Marisol Thomer and I believe this and that on a New York City street corner. What does it matter? And so it's sort of this interesting thing where the, your real name doesn't actually, doesn't matter in, in terms of, yeah. I mean, obviously it does if your employer sees it, but otherwise. That's a good point. Time for just, uh, let's do like two more comments. And Gentleman here has had a hand up for a while. When Ethan first said avatars versus gravitas, I thought he said avatars versus gravitas, which would be a really interesting kind of another angle and reputation uh, and how that might affect conversations. Um, but just a side point, and we, we, we heard a bit about demographics, which I think is really interesting. But in terms of a, an explanatory variable which might explain behavior, I think age would be a really interesting one to, mm. to dig away at in terms of age um, out of the commenters themselves. Um, because, uh, you know, Facebook is in, in some ways one platform, but it's also, you know, one point six billion platforms coexisting at once, I think to a greater extent to a more differentiated extent than the HuffPo current page mm. is, just in terms of how we receive information. Yeah. We've heard about filter bubbles and everything else. Um, and I do think that there's a serious cohort effect in terms of how different age cohorts do use uh, these platforms and, and what that might say. And of course, that points to maybe changes down the line, which we may be able to affect with our system design, but may also just happen through different people who use the internet in different ways, um, bringing their practices to bear on these platforms. Mm -hmm question about uh, your data set and whether it collects any information as far as demographics. When you pulled up the information about gender behavior, one of the big things that came to mind was the very negative behavior toward females online. And I don't know if your data set would have actually pulled demographics as far as male, female, you know, race or age, but you could almost yeah. run an algorithm just pulling names. And so if you're Jane versus your Joe, I might have a very different attitude toward that person because of a natural, you know, sexist bias where I, I, I might be more aggressive. Yeah. And you saw some different behavior there. Or even if I see that your name is Asian rather than, yeah. you know, John Smith. Yeah. So, I mean, we've tried. That's obviously in the first two phases, that's impossible to do because, right, there are not. If Facebook, I think Rolf has tried to do that. And, and try to work out with some reasonable degree of accuracy what whether the name is likely to likely to match a gender. But we didn't. But because that was that was hard to do. Right? We thought it would be really interesting to look at the gender of commenters, but that's hard to do. So what we were able to do was to look at the sort of grammatical gender of the subject of the comment. Mm -hmm. So you know we, we're allowed, we don't know if that's really a woman there or or, or whatever. But we do know if, if they're calling if it's a he or a she that's being you know, denigrated in a particular instance. And there's an interesting book on trolling, actually, where, um, where the, the author of this book finds that trolling is often gendered male. So, a, a, so the language of trolling is gendered male. Even, so even when there were female trolls, they were using, they, they were passing themselves off as males in, in, the, in that environment. But, you know, long story, yeah, long story short, on, we just, we find that very hard to get at. But so we've tried in the gender, so the bits of the gender effect that we can look at fairly easily are whether it's a male or female author of the article and whether the language is directed towards you know, he or she. 
which is okay. also conveniently developed by Nathan Matias, the same doctoral student that I'm hoping that you'll talk to about Calvo yeah. and Flirt's research, but allows you to feed in names and algorithmically make an 89% accurate guess on gender. That's where Rolf, about, that's where Rolf about got to. Was yeah. about, he got about eight, yeah. yeah. So, uh, and so this has been a great discussion. I just have um, three kind of comments to bring it all together. I think it's stepping back. This is a really important discussion because the first thing it does is kind of, I'm going to use a big word here, denaturalize what we think of as the internet and what the public sphere consequences of the internet are, right? We're used to thinking, the way we usually talk is like, oh, the internet will do this. It will deconcentrate media. It will drive us into our separate corners through filter bubble effects, right? It's People, sometimes sociologists, sometimes call this a technological determinism, right? There's this technology out there, and it will have X, Y, or Z social effects. But that's almost never true. We have a lot more agency over that because we design the technologies, right? And so part of Alfred's project here is to figure out what the better and less good designs are for these platforms that we now get most of our news from, carry on many of our social mm -hmm. relations on, and that has enormous democratic consequences. Whether democracy works out well or badly, or maybe even survives at all, depends upon the quality of the public sphere. And so it's an enormously important project to analyze which designs work better and worse for uh, democratic deliberation and the quality of the public sphere. So that's the second point, is that analysis and normative conclusions are possible. The third point, which is kind of more negative one, is I don't know that we'll be able to do anything up to, with those consequences for the following reason, right? So the early internet, as people know, was designed by engineers with a certain ethos of decentralization, of openness, of freedom, of horizontalness, right? But now the design of the internet from Facebook and Google and these other platforms is for basically one reason and one reason only, and that is to maximize ad revenue. And so whether or not the particular design that results in a good public sphere will maximize ad revenue is, if it does, that would be a great coincidence, but it would only be a coincidence, yeah. right? Yeah. And so even if we know how to do it, we have in this kind of, ad-driven internet stage, a relatively limited agency in order to, to move the big platforms that way. But yeah. that can change too with a yeah. political will. So still a little bit optimistic then. Yeah. But I think it's a great project and I just didn't want people to, I mean, we got a lot into really interesting details which are critical and I just thought I'd end by stepping back and giving the big, yeah. picture. Giving the big picture about what this project, and that's, broadly speaking, yeah, and that, that's spot on. That's very much our interest to sort of say, you know, the internet is not the internet, it's multiple different spaces. And yeah, and, and we want to think about these design choices, but we have exactly this problem that, uh, you know, they're not making design choices with deliberation in mind. So, uh, <laughs> right. But at least it might be worth thinking about what those might, would be. Yeah, exactly. So big thanks to Alfred. Okay.